it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Thursday, March the 9th, 2023. I'm Guy Benson. This is my show, The Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Then around the clock for free, on demand on our podcast at GuyBensonShow.com or FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm the political editor at TownHall.com, a Fox News contributor. I'll be on Kudlow's show a little bit later on in the next hour. Looking forward to that on Fox Business Network. Here on the radio, great lineup today. Molly Hemingway will be here in just about half an hour. We'll catch up with Molly to kick off our second hour, an hour from now, former U.S. Attorney General Bill Barr is going to be here talking about the Mexican drug cartels, what can be done. He's arguing for something of a military and intelligence component of the solution. We'll ask him about that, plus the crime here in D.C. I'm sure he has some thoughts. Larry Kudlow, who will have me on the TV side, He will then return the favor and join us on the radio to begin our final hour just after 5 p.m. Eastern time. He and I will tackle President Biden's brand new budget, which he is rolling out today. As a matter of fact, right now, as we speak, Joe Biden is speaking in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and he is touting this new budget. And I have a few thoughts on the budget that I'll get to here in just a moment, and then we will revisit the topic with Larry Kudlow, who's an economic expert, top-ranking economic advisor to President Trump. Looking forward to that discussion. It's all ahead on today's Guy Benson Show. Here's uh, the general push that the White House is going for, and I think it's important just to note at the outset, this is going nowhere. The Republicans control the House of Representatives, Uh, They control the purse strings. This budget proposal from President Biden is dead as a doornail. He's talking about it right now. He's at a podium with the uh, presidential microphones, and then he's holding a microphone as well in his hand as he sort of wanders a little bit. He kind of looks like those Muppets, the cranky old guys. I've been watching it with the sound off. That's the vibe that I'm getting from him today. And this is all about politics. He is trying to make a political argument, setting up a budget fight with Republicans and also setting up some of the battle lines, it looks like, for next year's presidential election. And I guess the White House has decided that leaning even further into the left wing, class warfare, tax and spend stuff is beneficial to the president, beneficial to the Democrats. I'm not so sure. Wall Street Journal reporting it this way earlier. President Biden proposed a $6.9 trillion budget that calls for reducing deficits, which is a joke, by the way. It's all through tax increases that are likely not to ever generate the types of revenues 
that they claim. This is often what happens. But they're framing it as a deficit reduction budget, which is just amazing because, as I just told you, it's a $6.9 trillion budget that raises taxes on wealthy people and large corporations. I would add small businesses detailing a policy vision that isn't expected to gain momentum in Congress, but is an opening salvo in spending talks with Republicans. Biden's fiscal year 24 budget plan calls for an increase over the roughly $6.9 trillion that the White House expects the federal government to spend this fiscal year. It's, in fact, half a trillion dollars higher than what we're spending this year. Now, just for context, I want to remind you, I just took a couple years at random. I picked 2007 and I picked 2019. So 2007 is, you know, it's been a while. It's not that long ago. It's not the ancient days, the dark ages. It's 2007. That's the year I graduated from college. In 2007, the U.S. government, the federal government, spent $2.7 trillion all in. All federal spending combined in 2007 was $2.7 trillion. In 2019, which is very recent history, the last year pre-pandemic, in 2019 the federal government spent $4.4 trillion, a lot more than we had just talked about 12 years prior. But 2019, right before the pandemic and the explosion of all the emergency spending, By the way, it looks like Peter Ducey is having a word right now with President Biden, and uh, they're having exchange. So I'll be very curious to hear what they're talking about. That's happening right now. But in 2019, it was $4.4 trillion. That was the total amount of money Uncle Sam spent in the federal budget, $4.4 trillion. That's 2019. We're now in 2023, just a few years later. And Biden's proposal is $6.9 trillion. I mean, we're not just edging higher and higher. These are leaps. And we don't have ways of paying for this. Federal revenues, right, revenues coming in from taxes are at all-time highs. In fact, they spiked revenues after Republicans cut taxes. Congressional Republicans cut taxes, and they told us, oh, it's going to be a huge explosion of deficits, and the government's going to starve, and it's going to be terrible. It's going to be Armageddon. People are going to die. That's what they say about everything all the time. Trump signed it, and what happened? The U.S. economy exploded. Like, not imploded, exploded in the best way. Cooking with gas, unemployment cratered. Yeah, unemployment cratered to all-time lows across all sorts of demographics. People were working. The economy was growing. Wages were growing. Things were going really well. Revenues surged to all-time highs. And yet, the deficits continue to get worse and worse because we keep spending way more money than we take in. Problems the spending, as always. And here's Joe Biden showing up in this angry political speech saying what they really want to do for progress next year is spent $6.9 trillion in the federal budget. So 07, it was $2.7 trillion. 
And that was, by the way, in the middle of the war. That's, oh, defense spending, the wars, the wars. That spending included the war in Iraq and Afghanistan. $2.7 trillion in 07 when I graduated from college. 2019, the last year before the pandemic, $4.4 trillion, big increase. And now how about a giant jump to $6.9 trillion, $500 billion bigger than they're going to spend this year at $6.4 trillion. These numbers are just unfathomable. And I know it's hard to sort of wrap your brain around, and I'm just throwing a bunch of data points at you, but I hope just that growth trajectory, not economic growth, spending growth trajectory, is on some level like getting through to you. It's alarming to me. Now, again, because Republicans control the House, this is not going to happen. But if the Democrats were to regain control of the government, and have that reconciliation package possibility, that tool at their disposal, if they just win some elections in 2024, if the Republicans underperform again in 2024 and lose some ground, this blueprint that Biden is putting out today, a lot of it could become a reality, which is why 2024 is going to be so essential for Republicans to win They need to put themselves into positions of winning by being smart about who they nominate up and down the ticket. Do we want to nominate as conservatives known losers that turn off a bunch of people in the electorate or winners, established winners who don't seemingly go out of their way? to shut off a bunch of independent voters. These are things that Republicans need to think about because it's not just like, you know, grievance settling that's at stake. It's the future of the country that's at stake. And a movement and a party that is sane will prioritize winning, especially when you look at the other side of the aisle where the Democrats are going, what they've already done, what they want to do next with this so-called leader, in Joe Biden, basically doing his best Elizabeth Warren impression today. It's not like a low-stakes fight where he can be looking backwards and sort of going through recriminations and relitigating differences and frustrations from the past. That's just like my little side sermon about the importance of 2024. Coming back to Biden today and what he's proposing So much of it that's getting the attention in the way that, of course, the media says, oh, look at all the deficit reduction. A lot of that, I think, is going to be totally illusory, as it so often is. They're calling for a billionaire's tax, a wealth tax. This has been tried. They put it into place all over Europe, and it just failed. It did the opposite of what the stated intention was. So in a lot of places in Europe, they actually repealed it. It was that big of a failure. They want to massively raise capital gains taxes, which history has shown us when you hike capital gains taxes, revenues actually fall. Barack Obama was asked about this as a presidential candidate. Raising capital gains taxes, which is what he was proposing, has reduced revenues, whereas cutting the taxes has increased the revenues. So do you want the benefit of lower taxes? And more revenues, or do you want what feels good to stick it to rich investors, even if it means that the government makes less money? 
And Barack Obama just straight up said that he preferred fairness. Right, that's the mentality. They prefer this like visceral sense of fairness where they can claim that they're sticking it to the rich, even though, I mean, they're the party of the rich. They're the party of big spending on political campaigns. They pretend they're the opposite, but they are the elite party now. But they like to make themselves and their base feel good with this stuff, even if the results are the exact diametrically opposed outcome what they at least claim the goal is, like the goal unto itself seems to be, quote unquote, fairness. They want to raise the corporate income tax. They want to raise taxes further on people making over $400,000 a year. That includes a lot of small businesses. You might like the idea, a lot of Americans do, of sort of the warfare between classes. Oh, yeah, just big fat cats. Let's stick it to them and uh, give us more goodies. That generally polls well. But when you raise taxes on businesses, a lot of whom are scared to invest right now because inflation's been bad, there could be a recession coming, and the Democrats, surprise, surprise, are proposing tax increases and more spending. It's their solution to everything always and forever and ever, amen. They're saying, oh, no, 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 keep investing. We need jobs in this country, but get ready. We want to tax you even more. Big businesses, small businesses, taxes are going up. Investors, taxes are going up. That's what they want to do. Do you really believe that's something that's going to work for our economy? The economy has been through enough the last couple of years. The least, to me, logical thing to do is to go out of your way to punish the people who actually create jobs and growth in order to take that money, confiscate that money, and they'll never get as much as they say they're going to get, and then redistribute it into all of their crazy boondoggle spending deals. That's what Biden is proposing. He was bragging about inflation today, and getting a handle on inflation, which is like way, way higher than when he took office, near historic highs. Multi-decade highs. Some of the recent inflation data got worse. By the way, the Dow tanking after that speech in this budget proposal, down, what, 528 points right now. Biden claiming that they've lowered energy prices. I mean, no. Like, when he took office, he wants you to judge his performance on inflation and energy prices based on the worst numbers during his presidency, but not the good numbers before he took office. He has created more problems in both of those categories. And weirdly, he's trying to take credit for it. I mean, gaslighting is one word that comes to mind. Speaking of gaslighting, listen to Cut 31. This is something that he said just moments ago. MAGA Republicans are calling for defunding the police departments. (laughs) Okay. That's exactly how seriously you should take this speech and this budget. The MAGA Republicans want to defund the police. Okay. Sure, bro. Not a single person believes that because it's not true. It's a stupid Democrat talking point, and it's all about politics. They're not convincing anyone with that. So that's what this president in this moment has decided to do. 
that kind of speech, this kind of budget, almost $7 trillion of spending, five-plus trillion dollars in tax increases, and he wants you to believe it's not going to affect you, only other people. Don't you worry. What credibility does this man have on anything related to our economy, on the Inflation Reduction Act, on the American Rescue Plan? Everything he predicts is wrong on basically everything, economic or otherwise. He's been wrong, 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 wrong over and over again, and now he's going to come back to the well and hope that you think suddenly he's right about this stuff. He's not. It's a joke. It is destructive, it's delusional, and it's going nowhere, thanks to the Republican majority in the House. But if Democrats have another good election year in 2024, this stuff could become reality. That's the call to action if you're a conservative ahead of what's going to happen next year in a blockbuster election. we got to run. We're just getting started. Big show ahead. Great guest. Please stay with us on The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in freefall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. The Democrats and the media are all in, as usual, attacking Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida. As I so often do, I would ask you to consider why that's the case. Why Joe Biden, in his speech a few minutes ago, focused so much on Donald Trump. He went to that name several times, practically begging for a rematch. I wonder why he would want that. You can draw your conclusions. But the Washington Post and the New York Times are both out with pieces on fear and fury of Florida parents who don't like what DeSantis is doing and children caught in the crossfire of DeSantis's culture war. That's the Times and the Washington Post. Just in the last, what, 24, 48 hours. Never mind that the vast majority of parents voted for Ron DeSantis. He won by 19 and a half points. They're finding the people who are very angry about the culture wars that often they start the left. DeSantis responds and they can't handle it. They're more than welcome to oppose their governor. That's fine. They can also move if they want, like their kids being indoctrinated and all this trans stuff and, you know, maybe out of school for a year and a half and then masked up for another year and a half. They could, by all means, move to California where hundreds of thousands of people are fleeing, but they could go there or somewhere else if they felt like it. Media's all in, though, on this. Again, I ask you, why? Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my (laughs) name is Chad. His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. (laughs) 
You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. It is the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com, our website. Podcast free when the show is over every day on demand. Joining us now is Molly Hemingway, editor-in-chief at The Federalist, Fox News contributor, author, at MZ Hemingway on Twitter. Molly, hello again. Great to be here with you. So I saw this headline, and I don't even understand what the basis for this is, but apparently President Biden's FTC is now investigating Elon Musk and Twitter's internal communications, and Democrats are now demanding to know the sources that journalists were able to access in order to put forward the Twitter files and some of the revelations that have come forth uh, through those efforts I mean, am I missing something here, Molly, or is this just obviously an example of political weaponization to punish people for doing or saying or reporting things that leftists and progressives don't like? The story seemed so crazy to me that it almost didn't seem real, and I was digging into it. And Twitter and the FTC engaged in a consent decree before Elon bought Twitter. And it was related to how they use personal information to target advertisers. And so it is common when you enter into into a consent decree that you might have the agency that ordered that to you know monitor some some information. But what everyone I talked to said was that this was so much more broad and more specific and more weird in terms of what information they were trying to get than anything they had ever seen. You know, I was talking to people who had actually authored responses to consent decrees who had worked at the agency level, and they said this is this is as weird as it seems, particularly the request for journalist contact and just like personal information about Elon. The, he, the, the, uh, the people were saying it looks almost like they're looking for dirt that they can leak or that they can publicize. It's not, it does not look legitimate to these people who actually have experience in this area. Congresswoman Stacey Plaskett has been one of the leading Democrats, and, I mean, she's just saying kind of the quiet part out loud openly and she's pretending that a journalist that the republicans have brought forward as witnesses are harmful and pose a threat to the safety of members of congress it's like absolutely crazy stuff she refers to some of these journalists who've been involved as so-called journalists just sort of you know ridiculing them at the covid origins hearing yesterday that we covered a little bit on this show the ranking Democrat on that subcommittee about where, you know, the big plague started, trying to look into that. It killed millions of people. His major mission, it seemed, during the hearing was to call one of the scientists and expert witnesses a racist based on a book that he'd written like 10 or 11 years ago. I mean, they're not really being subtle about it, Molly. Uh, it's, it's quite something to watch. There's a bit of a freakout going on, which is one thing, but the attacks on journalism really are something that should concern everybody. And, you know, we recently went through a period of time where mere criticism of journalism was viewed as an attack on the First Amendment. It's actually not. You are free to criticize uh, journalism that you don't like or the effect of journalism. But here we have people, you know, in this hearing today, they were trying to get the journalists to reveal their sources, which many journalists like myself are loath to do, uh, will work very hard to to avoid revealing sources. They just kept going after them to find it out. They 
falsely claimed that they were a direct threat, as you as you noted, and some real attacks on journalists who are a threat to the government, yes, because they are showing how the government conspired with big tech firms to suppress First Amendment rights of American people. But this is really, you know, if there are any people on the left left who care about freedom of speech or of the press, now would be a good time for them to speak up. New York Times headline, Republicans push lab leak theory on COVID's origins but lack smoking gun. Okay, so, Molly, we still have these people weirdly clinging to the natural origin theory, which I guess is still possible, but they very much don't have a smoking gun, and you feel like you would be able to find that smoking gun pretty easily. The Chinese government seems to have destroyed the actual smoking gun, but if it were happening out in nature and it was some bat or something, you know, you would have found the vessels that had this naturally occurring disease jump to human beings. We haven't found that. And this is, you know, a a Republican's push theory, slightly different than a Republican's pounce, but kind of the similar uh, theme here from the New York Times. Like, oh, here are these Republicans with their weird obsession on the lab leak theory, but they don't have proof. And I mean, Molly, on one hand, you've got members of the press who are wedded and invested to a theory that has even less evidence behind it for like entirely political reasons, it seems. And Republicans recently have simply been pointing out the conclusion reached by the Department of Energy under the Biden administration, echoed by the FBI. I mean, this is these are not Republican-dominated entities who have reached this conclusion, and yet here's how the New York Times chooses to frame it. I think it's actually even worse than what you say, because part of the point of this oversight investigation is to determine who exactly was involved in suppressing information about the likelihood that this was a lab leak. Our colleague at Fox, Brett Baer, did amazing reporting on this several months ago, looking at actual documents, email and you know, witness testimony that showed how some of the people who were in charge of the public health response in the United States, including Anthony Fauci, apparently worked to conceal information about the likelihood that this was a lab leak, including by giving money to people who had first raised concern that it was a lab leak, getting them to change their story, and then giving them large grants. And I feel like that journalism that Brett Baer did did not get enough attention And that is part of what's happening in this hearing is to determine that. So when they say there's no smoking gun, that itself is part of the problem because the time to to examine this was precisely at the time that that information was being suppressed. Yeah, I mean, I think that's absolutely correct. I think it's indisputable. And it's so funny. They defer to experts all the time when it suits their needs and suits their ideological bent. In fact, they choose their experts for that reason, so they can hide behind the expertise of others and then report what they feel in their hearts is true. Uh, It's one of the tricks that they use. We've been talking about that a lot. They abuse and misuse terms like conspiracy theory and misinformation constantly on this stuff. We talk about that a lot as well. But then when other experts, actual experts, sort of disrupt the narrative in any way. They they suppress these people. They shame these people. They attack these people. They call them all sorts of names. They look the other way. Don't, don't pay attention. Ignore what's happening over there. There's not really an interest in expertise or science or data, except insofar as it helps them advance their agenda. And they're just so 
blatant about it is the thing, Molly. And maybe we should be thankful for that. Like, if they were more subtle and insidious about it, it might be harder to prove. But it's not hard at all because they're doing it proudly and openly constantly. It is good that they're being open about it, I guess. But we're talking about a pandemic that killed millions of people and that they would play political games even now. Like you would think, okay, all's fair in love and politics and this little issue or that little issue. But this is something that killed millions of people, destroyed global economies, hurt so many poor people and they don't care about getting to the bottom of it. And it's it's uh, it's really fascinating how much they're obsessed with political wins over even truth about something like this. Now, in the last segment, Molly, I pointed out that the Washington Post and the New York Times, as they have done now for years, uh, they're both out with like dueling attack pieces against Ron DeSantis, where they're going and finding parents and kids who are uh, very angry and furious and terrified by what Ron DeSantis is doing in Florida. And, you know, there was just a big public referendum on his leadership called an election, and the outcome of that election was very clear and very decisive in a way that it never is in Florida, actually. Uh, but he set all sorts of records with his victory margin. But they're finding the people who are, you know, dissidents, uh, fine. Uh, those people exist. They're allowed to oppose the governor and the government. That's that's what we do in this country. They're also more than welcome to do the reverse commute thing. Everyone's moving to Florida and Texas and Tennessee. You know, libs who were terrified of those states are more than welcome to go to Chicago and enroll their kids in public schools in Chicago or move out to San Francisco and and enjoy the housing prices and the homelessness there. I mean, they can do those things and be represented by guys like Newsom and Pritzker and and enjoy all of the the bounty that comes with life in blue states these days. They're not doing that. Uh, They're they're complaining to The New York Times and The Washington Post, who, as usual, are trying to find people to – fill the quotation marks with attack lines on Ron DeSantis that these journalists already believe themselves. On MSNBC the other day, this is this goes to my expertise point, Molly, they had one of their experts on history, Michael Beschloss. And it has been mind-blowing to me, Molly, watching the number of like political analysts and historians in the last couple of years who have just seemingly lost their minds completely. They have no desire to seem like, you know, impartial calm, serious-minded students of history. They're just full-blown, like, YouTube commenters at this point. But uh, Michael Beschloss went on MSNBC and teed off with a gross misappropriation of history in Cut 25. Look what Rick DeSantis has done in Florida. He was known as sort of a nondescript uh, political leader, member of Congress. Suddenly, he really has tried to turn himself into sort of a local Mussolini in Florida with the book banding and the brutal tactics. And even this week, this suggestion that bloggers have to register with the state for the honor of writing about the governor and other other political leaders. We have to call this what this is. This is fascism and authoritarianism that goes even beyond what Trump has talked about. That's what he thinks is going to work in that party. And in a way, that's the scariest thing of all. All right, Molly. So he calls him Rick DeSantis, this very well-informed historian. Rick DeSantis is doing uh, doing the fascism uh, down in Florida. His examples are book banning, which is a lie. Uh, the The blogger registration bill is not a DeSantis bill. It's like some random guy introduced it. DeSantis is against it or has not endorsed it. But that is what passes for like 
the analysis of a supposedly respected historian on MSNBC, and you just put that right next to the Washington Post reporting, the New York Times reporting that I uh, just mentioned to you, they are guns blazing on this guy. And we even heard a little worse than Trump hint there from Beschloss. Again, uh, no subtlety here at all, um, but a lot to, I, I guess, object to. You know, I feel bad for the people who are watching this that they might believe these lies. And one thing I like about what the Ron DeSantis administration and political arm have done is actually begin to hold some of the corporate media to account for their lies. The recently Andrea Mitchell lied about something. I think it might have even been related to this false characterization of curriculum bills as book banning bills. And it was the uh, it was the African American AP. Uh, controversy okay. where she said that he was like banning black history in schools, a total lie. And they and they said they wouldn't talk to anyone at an at, an, at NBC until they apologized for it. And she within hours, I think, came out and admitted that she was wrong. And so I think one of the things that's incumbent upon people who are victims of lying propaganda press is to hold them to account. And the Washington Post and New York Times are livid with Ron DeSantis that he won't play their games, talk to them, do that thing where if they talk ill of another Republican, they might give them a little bit better coverage. And they also know that he is extremely popular with Republican voters for a reason. What I don't know if they understand is the more negative press he gets, the more it's a signal to Republican voters that he really is someone worth respecting and liking. And so they're actually – They'll never they learn might not realize it. But they're helping him a little bit. Oh, I mean, they've been helping him constantly for years. I mean, the the negative stories and the provable lies have been like in-kind contributions to him. He's been running with it, but they keep going because they can't help themselves, Molly. And I was just waiting for the worse than Trump thing, and they got to it months ago. I mean, it's just like they all, like like lemmings, just go flying in the same direction, sometimes off a cliff. And they're telegraphing very clearly what they're afraid of. I just want to ask you, we have about a minute left. You were talking about the DeSantis operation, his campaign, his governor's office, and the way that they treat the press. They basically just don't deal with the press, the mainstream press. They don't talk to them. He'll do press conferences. He'll tangle with them in Q&As at press conferences, but he just doesn't engage really with them otherwise. Uh, Is that sustainable if he wants to run for president, or is he missing an opportunity to go talk to those audiences? I I fully support what he's doing, and I wouldn't say that he's not dealing with them. I mean, one of the things that his team will do is they'll post their responses that they give to the media publicly so everyone can see what the response is. So it's not like they're not answering them, per se. They're just not giving them a legitimacy they don't deserve. And I think one thing we learned in this, you know, I've been actually kind of excited for the worse than Trump you know, slur. You knew it was coming, so I kind of like to see it. But in this post-Trump era, there's no point in working with people who will make up stories and lies. And that's what they've said. They're like, you know, you are what you are. You're the opposition. We're treating you as such. Molly Hemingway, our guest. Thank you, Molly. It's the Guy Benson Show. Back here together on the Guy Benson Show. So much still to get to. As a matter of fact. I've got a slew of programming notes to send your way here just in these next few minutes. Number one, on the TV side, through the magic of radio and television, I will be joining Larry Kudlow on Kudlow, his FBN show coming up in the next hour. I'll be on set with Larry 
at the U.S. Capitol, just a few steps from where we're sitting right now. Katie Pavlich is joining me on the tube, so that'll be a lot of fun. Larry Kudlow will be here after his show at 5.05 Eastern, kicking off our final hour, the happy hour. We're going to talk about President Biden's budget that he announced today in sort of this ornery, tendentious and dishonest speech he gave in Philadelphia earlier. Larry is chomping at the bit to talk about it, covering it on his TV show, and then full analysis here on the radio just after 5 o'clock Eastern. Looking forward to that with Larry. Meanwhile, coming up next on this show, Bill Barr, U.S. Attorney General under George H.W. Bush and then again under President Trump. He will be here in studio. He wrote a piece, I think it was last week, in the Wall Street Journal about the drug cartels in Mexico and how it's a national security threat to the United States, how the U.S. Like, intelligence and military communities need to get involved. So we will ask him about that. And there are, of course, all sorts of news hooks to that thesis. So looking forward to welcoming back Bill Barr here coming up as soon as we return after the top of the hour. And just one other thing to point out, you can listen to us. In the meantime, set your DVR and record it on Fox News Channel. Neil Cavuto, the beloved host of Your World, he has Dr. Anthony Fauci on the show today. That could be interesting. We'll be monitoring that, of course. And maybe if there's news, we can get to it tomorrow. But Fauci has some explaining to do. We'll see what Neil has in store for Fauci on the news channel in the next hour. So just like a blizzard of information. I'll be on Cudlow in the next hour, FBN, Fauci on FNC with Cavuto, Bill Barr on this radio show coming right up, and then Larry Cudlow back here with me on the radio in the hour after that. Got it? I think the simple answer is stay tuned. The next hour of The Guy Benson Show is straight ahead. city in the world unconventional talk from a fresh unconventional conservative guy benson show a brand new hour on the guy benson show is underway from washington dc and the tony snow studios glad to have you all here guy benson show.com is our website our podcast is free every day when the show is over on demand no charge guy benson show.com foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show on Twitter and Instagram. I am very pleased to have back in studio with me Bill Barr, former U.S. Attorney General under two different presidents, also author of the terrific political memoir, One Damn Thing After Another. Sir, it's great to see you. Great to see you, Guy. Thanks for coming in. Sure, my pleasure. So I saw your piece the other day in the Wall Street Journal, The U.S. Must Defeat Mexico's Drug Cartels. And this was published before four American citizens were kidnapped and two of them were murdered by the drug cartels. Right. So it's taking on even more relevance since it was published. Give us your broad view thesis of the piece and why you felt like it was urgent to write this now. Right. To deal with the drug problem in the United States, uh, which is growing and imposing huge costs on the United States in terms of lives and, and – uh, uh, treasure. Uh, 
yes, you need some demand-side reduction, but you also need an attack on the supply. They have to go hand in hand. Attacks on the supply are most effective and have been historically very effective if you do it at the source of the drugs. The place to fight the drugs is not necessarily uh, you know, in the neighborhoods as it's being distributed. Yes, you try to stop that. But if you can get at the source and destroy the cartels, uh, that's where you're going to make a difference. And we can do it, and we know how to do it, and we've done it before. In the early 1990s, we, with the cooperation of the Colombians, uh, they gave us a lot of latitude, and we were able to destroy the Cali and the Medellin cartels. Uh, but then we stopped doing that kind of thing in about 1995, and we allowed them to take root in Mexico, and there's been nothing stopping them. They've been growing, and they've now established safe havens. And they're oper- they control a, a tremendous portion of the country. The government is not interested in, in stopping them. It won't do anything seriously to challenge them. It's sharing sovereignty with them. It's, it's uh, you know, sort of peaceful coexistence. They have neither the will nor the ability to curtail the cartels. The cartels have corrupted the Mexican government, as they do almost all Mexican governments, with the oceans of money that they have. And those that they can't corrupt, they'll intimidate with terrorism and Mm -hmm. terror tactics. If you're a judge trying to do your job or a cop trying to do your job, you have to worry about your family getting wiped out. So they have a vice-like grip on that country. And the Mexicans themselves are not going to be able to break free of it, in my opinion. Is that that a failed state? I think it's uh, – under this – government, AMLO's government, I think it's spiraled to the point of being a failed narco state. AMLO is Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, yes, the lefty Mexican president, right. and you're calling him the chief enabler of the cartels in this Wall Street Journal piece. Yes. He came in and uh, he announced he's not no longer going to fight the drug war. He's not going to fight against the cartels. Uh, His policy was hugs, not bullets, and he wants to do a lot more social spending to eliminate poverty in Mexico, which I don't think is going to happen in in your lifetime. (laughs) But that's not the problem. The problem is these criminal organizations that are now paramilitary, tens and tens of thousands of these uh, thugs, uh, they have military forces. They can go toe-to-toe with the Mexican military. What does it tell you when they go to make one arrest in in Culiacan, which is the capital of Sinaloa state controlled by the Sinaloa cartel? They go in to arrest El Chapo's son. They sent in – the first time, um, they sent in 700 uh, – approximately 1,000 to to, to arrest them. And uh, they had to give them up because uh, they were outgunned by the – cartels and then the cartels surrounded uh, an apartment where the families of the military people were so they surrendered the the son and left. That was the first humiliation. Then more recently they went in with 3,500 troops. They did arrest them and then they left. They left in the face of cartel gunmen, paramilitary operatives. Instead of dealing with the cartels, it's you know, just leave them in place. Retreat. Yeah, retreat. And by the way, this matters to Americans not only because, you know, you talk about drugs and you were talking about the 90s and Colombia, cocaine, and some people think about, okay, you know, marijuana, should we be fighting that that war? This is like fentanyl, right? Yeah. This is killing tens of thousands of Americans. Right. And the cartels that you're talking about, ruthless killers, 
they control not the Mexican government. They control the Mexican side of our border. Right. And they're moving up into our cities. They have, you know, regional uh, associates, uh, groups, uh, and influence around the country. They're sort of divvying up the United States. They they control our border. Uh, and I'm worried that they're going to start moving their terror tactics into the United States. There was that young woman and her family that was wiped out in California in a drug-related thing. Uh, so, so how do we stop it? Right? And if we get much more aggressive, I know you're basically endorsing in this piece military intervention against the cartels. There's a case be made for it. I'll let you make the case. Might that encourage the cartels to bring some of their terrorism tactics to the U.S. to go effectively to war against us? Well, they are already in a war yeah, against us. And, and, and just so you know, the casualties just of the overdoses, which are just the immediate deaths, those aren't all the deaths related to the drugs. Methamphetamine deaths are grim and slow, but a lot of people die from the meth. Uh, but the, the, the stuff from the opioids, the synthetic opioids, it's, a, it's, uh, it's, it's over – I mean all over, uh, overdose deaths are like 106,000 a year, which – 109,000 a year, which is the same level as our worst year in World War II in terms of killed in action. So we are sustaining on an annual basis casualties that are akin to those in a world war. And uh, as I say, that's just not all the deaths and all the violence that's associated with it and the money. So what do we do? Well, that's it. You know, let's get honest and realistic with the situation. We have these people operating in safe havens. Uh, The government of Mexico is not capable of dealing with them. They have no will and even if they had the will, they don't have the means. Their criminal justice system is a joke. Only only 5 percent of the violent crimes are ever punished in Mexico. It's a pathetic system and that's when it operates at full (laughs) – Capacity at full bore, or at all, at all. That's yeah. I mean, it, it's a pathetic system. They're totally uh, there's corruption rife in the system. You give them information, it'll get back to the cartels. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. Which means that both law enforcement and military operations are compromised. So they don't have the capacity to do it. And under you know under international law, the basic principle is you're not allowed if you claim sovereignty over a country then you have the duty to prevent your territory from being used as a launch pad for uh, harm and injury to a neighbor. And they're allowing it to happen. And so that means we fall back on our right to self-defense. Uh, now, I'm not, I, don't, I have no hope that this administration is going to do anything about it. They'll do the usual kabuki dance. You know, Trump actually pushed – AMLO to do some stuff and, and – but we were talking about getting tougher after the election. If, if Trump was reelected, he, I think he was going to get a lot tougher. But I don't think these people are going to do anything. But I, I, I do think that we're just going to have to use every tool at our disposal. So what I say is number one, the only way the Mexicans are going to cooperate with us to the extent – and it's optimal to have their cooperation – is to let them know we're going to do it one way or the other. In other words, we are going to move directly against the cartels. You're with us or are you against us? Like the U.S. Army? Uh, well, no, I don't think it would – well, it would require mili- some military personnel. But this is not like a World War II invasion. Like DEA, CIA, aggressive stuff? 
aggressive stuff, but also special operations. I mean, the kinds of things we did in Syria. Uh, ISIS was destroyed in a very short period of time. And I think this group is much more like ISIS than, you know, the godfather uh, of the American mafia. We're not dealing – this is not like dealing with the mafia in Providence, Rhode Island. Right, okay? where there's like a code. <laughs> right, right, but you, you can go and you can – you know, they have their – it was much smaller. You could investigate them, take them out and, and uh, arrest enough of them and imprison enough of them to break their back. These are tens, tens and tens of thousands of operators and paralegal, uh, paramilitary people. So the, and they're terrorists, and 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 uh, so it's much more like ISIS. So I think with a combination of all our tools, are it's like more national security than law enforcement. Similar arguments being made, you know, during the war on terror, like we can't prosecute right. this. You're a law enforcement guy, right? But you're saying this needs to be taken on more in a national security posture, right? This is this is. Ex, all external threats uh, of organized foreign groups that are a threat to us from outside our national security. The fact that we – uh, and that is we, we can use our national defense powers against them. The fact that we also pass laws gives us another tool. So we pass laws against terrorism. But that doesn't mean we have to use those laws. It doesn't change the nature of terrorism. We can still respond with our nat- with drones, for example, even though we could arrest them. But sometimes we can shoot drones at them. So the fact that we have laws against uh, international drug trafficking and human trafficking uh, doesn't mean we have to treat them as criminal matters, especially when we're dealing with foreigners external to the United States who are – who are carrying on operations that are meant to hurt us, and they do hurt us. And and uh, so, if we want to deal, if we want to deal with it, the place to deal with it is in Mexico. That's where the head of the snake is, and the, we know the Mexicans can't do it. They need our help. They will either accept it, but if they don't accept it, we have to be willing to do it ourselves. It's not World War Two. Uh, it's not uh, role, taking over and invading Mexico. It's it's an attack on the cartels. That would be a pre- like targeted price, precision precision attacks, and and also using other tools, including going after some of the banks that are that are uh, also which we do in terrorism yes. as well. I mean that, right. that's another parallel. And look, there are I think officials in Mexico who really do want to do this, but they can't. That's and right. there are other people in positions of power down there who don't and don't want to and won't, right? That's so right. it's like a combination of those things. It, it's like the invasion of the body snatchers down there because you don't know who's on the take and who isn't. And so a, a conscientious official doesn't know whether his colleague is going to go back and, and tell the cartels. Very quickly before we let you go, the Senate voting yesterday 81 to 14 to override this crazy new law from the D.C. City Council, bipartisan vote, embarrassing for Washington, D.C., I think a real body blow to the whole statehood thing. But from a, a law and order perspective, it's just insanity. Insane, it's insane what's happening in yeah. this place. It's insane uh, that there are people like that. Uh, but there are people like that in in many of our cities who are, who have I, – I don't know what's going through their mind. It's ideology. It has nothing to do with logic and trying to protect their their constituents from violence. It's crazy. Former U.S. Attorney General Bill Barr, who served in that position under President George H.W. Bush and President Trump. His book, One Damn Thing After Another, is a great read. 
Mr. Attorney General, it's always good to see you. Thank you, Guy. Great to see you. We'll take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. Thank you for listening. Yesterday, I tweeted on my personal account, at Guy P. Benson, a speech that was given on the Senate floor by Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, a Republican from Kentucky, who was talking about crime, and specifically crime in D.C. And he laid out the disgrace and the embarrassment that D.C. crime has become. And he gave examples and statistics, and he was setting up this vote that was going to happen that, as we mentioned, ended up being overwhelming. Most Democrats had to join with the Republicans to effectively strip away on some level home rule from the D.C. City Council because of their egregiously terrible policy decisions when it comes to crime. So this was a victory for Republicans. They dragged Democrats into this because of the political problem that the Democrats had. And finally, they realized it. I do think whether they want to admit it or not, it's a blow for D.C. statehood. Another point that we've been making here. But it was a good, quintessentially McConnell-esque speech in that it was delivered sort of in a calm, non-flashy, taciturn sort of way and was packed with reliably good, well-researched content. That's what he delivers in his floor speeches as the Republican leader. He's also the longest-serving Senate leader in the history of the Senate, which is something of an achievement unto itself, right? You don't do that easily, obviously, based on him setting that record. He set the record in January of this year as the longest-serving Senate leader. The reason I mention all of this, you all know that I'm a fan of Cocaine Mitch, as we call him, kind of a jokey nickname that goes back a number of years. I don't always agree with him. I know members of this audience often view him as part of the problem in D.C., Part of the problem with the Republican Party, I think he's a strategic thinker and generally prioritizes things correctly and in a very smart way, which is why I like and respect his leadership, especially on some of the biggest battles he's taken on, namely the courts, probably his greatest legacy. At least I would say so. Well, we raise all of this because last night Leader McConnell took a bit of a spill. He's being treated for a concussion. He was hospitalized for observation after he fell at an event at a hotel in D.C. His team put this out late last night in a very brief statement. And they didn't really expand with any details. I know we've gotten a few more dribs and drabs during the day. And look, the man is not young. He's in his 80s. I think mentally he's still very sharp, whether you agree with his thought process or not. He's a sharp thinker, but at a certain age, you know, people's bodies start to betray them and people trip. I mean, look, you can be a totally healthy, very young person. You trip over something, you you fall. It just gets a little scarier past a certain age. And generally, younger people aren't hospitalized after they fall. And so we hope that McConnell will recover very quickly and easily. And this is just a minor blip and that the hospitalization is a pure precaution Uh, Whether you love his politics or hate his politics, you know, these are human beings. So our thoughts and our prayers are going out to McConnell and his wife, Elaine Chow, and their family. And I hope to see him back 
up giving somewhat dull but very well-researched speeches in the U.S. Senate very soon. So I just wanted to put that out there and let you know that that was happening. And we are thinking of Cocaine Mitch today. With that, let's step aside. When we come back, a really good column by George Will, who is not exactly a red meat conservative, but he has also had it up to here with the woke excesses that we talk about so frequently on this program. So Will, in his erudite way, takes on woke culture, will explain and give you some examples from his new Washington Post column as soon as we come back. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Halfway through the show, it's the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com, podcast always free. George F. Will is a conservative columnist at the Washington Post, and he's had enough of the woke culture and how they push everything so far to the point of absurdity. And they alienate people. I've seen some lefties on social media touting some new poll that finds that most Americans think that woke is a positive thing. And it's just like bringing awareness to marginalized issues. And it's not really political correctness on steroids or whatever you want to describe it as. I'm very skeptical of that. I don't think that most Americans are on board for the woke stuff. And in fact, I would encourage the left to delude themselves if they think that wokeness is a positive thing and they should do more of it, go for it. We'll see how that goes. I think that they are misreading the moment very badly, misreading public opinion, finding you know one opinion poll that frame things one specific way to see, aha, the right is losing. I see a lot of them saying, look, Ron DeSantis fights woke, but people like woke. So he's failing. It's like, well, how did that go for him in November? And he ran a governorship, among other things, against wokeness, and he won by almost 20 points in that state. I think part of the reason that we got Donald Trump as president was because people were sick of the out-of-control wokeness even back then. So if they want to triple down, they feel like that's what the people are clamoring for, by all means, give it a shot. Dial it up to 11, guys. Let's see what happens. So here's George Will in his new column published today. Headline, Woke Word Policing is Now Beyond Satire. I feel compelled to point out that Mary Catherine Hamm and I wrote the book on this. Literally, back in 2015, end of discussion, which is still available. You can buy it on Amazon or elsewhere. End of discussion. We had an updated paperback in 2017 warning against this stuff. I wish more people had heeded the warning. But if I do say so myself, it's a book that has faced the test of time and withstood it. In some ways, it was prescient. In some ways, it feels almost quaint. How bad it was back then versus how bad it's gotten since then. So George Will wading into it here. He writes, sometimes in politics, which currently saturates everything, worse is better. When a political craze based on a bad idea achieves a critical mass... One wants it to be undone by ridiculous excess. Consider the movement to scrub from the English language 
and the rest of life, everything that anyone might consider harmful or otherwise retrograde. Worse really is better in today's America, if you will pardon that noun. Some at Stanford University will not. Read on. As the fever of foolishness denoted by the word woke now defies satire. At Stanford, a full-service, broad-spectrum educational institution, an elimination of harmful language initiative several months ago listed words to avoid lest they make someone feel sad, unsafe, disrespected, or something. Problematic words include American, which suggests that America, this column enjoys being transgressive, is the most important country in North and South America. The list was quickly drenched by an acid rain of derision, and Stanford distanced itself from itself. The university's chief information officer said the list was not a mandate. The list warns against using the culturally appropriative word chief about any non-indigenous person. So the chief information officer, I'm adding, uh, would perhaps run afoul of those rules. George Will writes, the University of Southern California School of Social Work banned the word field because it connotes slavery. So Joe DiMaggio did not roam Yankee Stadium's center field, heaven forfend. Perhaps center pasture. DiMaggio was a center pasturer, an awkward locution, but it appeases the sensitivity police. The Chicago Cubs should henceforth play in Wrigley Meadow. Such is the New York Times' astonishment, last week the newspaper treated as front-page news the fact that few people like the term Latinx. The Times described this as an inclusive, gender-neutral term to describe people of Latino descent. With Latinx, advanced thinkers, probably including hyper-progressive non-Latino readers of the Times, have exhausted the public's tolerance of linguistic progressivism. Progressive's bewildering new pronoun protocols ignited the laughter that Latinx intensified. I'm reading from George Will's new column. And we've mentioned a few of these examples along the way in Woke Tales. It's just good to have them skewered in such a highbrow way by a mind like George Will's. Back at Stanford, he writes, more than 75 professors are opposing the university's snitching apparatus. The protected identity harm system enables, actually by its existence it encourages, in students to anonymously report allegations against other students from whom they have experienced what the system calls harm because of who they are and how they show up in the world. It's exhausting. That's my editorial side note. Absolutely exhausting. When I spoke at Northwestern this week, I actually went after some of this stuff. I mean, if you have the opportunity on a campus like that to say these things, you go for it. Back to the Washington Post column. The protected identity harm website breathlessly greets visitors. If you are on this website, we recognize that you might have experienced something traumatic. Take a sip of water. Take a deep breath. PIH recently made national news when someone reported the trauma of seeing a student reading Hitler's Mein Kampf. The professors urged Stanford to avoid, quote, a formal process that students could construe as some sort of investigation into protected speech or that effectively requires them to admit their protected expression was problematic. Instead, Stanford can support students who are sensitive to speech without involving the speaker. 
end quote. Perhaps by gently shipping those who are sensitive to speech to a Trappist monastery. Early in the Cold War, some colleges and universities were pressured to require faculty to sign loyalty oaths, pledging that they were not members of the Communist Party. Liberals honorably led the fight against such government-enforced orthodoxy. Today, liberals are orthodoxy enforcers at many of these schools that require applicants for faculty positions to write their own oaths of loyalty to today's DEI obsession. They must express enthusiasm for whatever policies are deemed necessary to promote diversity, equity, and inclusion. Fortunately, the Board of Governors at the University of North Carolina recently joined a growing movement to ban requiring DEI statements in hiring and promotion processes, a recoil against aggressive wokeness. One of the examples, I would add, that is encouraging, heartening, part of the backlash, a backlash that we try to, at least in our own little way here, lead and contribute to on a very regular basis. As he winds up to his big conclusion, George Will gets into some of the book bodlerizing that we've been talking about recently. He writes, being dead, Roald Dahl is spared watching woke editors inflict on his children's books what Megan Cox Gurdon, writing in The Wall Street Journal, calls social justice blandification. To make them, quote, inclusive, Dahl's edited characters are no longer fat or ugly or anything else that might harm readers. The derisive laughter you hear is from parents who know how unwoke their children are in their enjoyment of vividly, sometimes insultingly, presented fictional characters. A story is told of a revolutionary socialist who was strolling with a friend when they encountered a beggar. The friend began to hand a few coins to the man, but the revolutionary stopped him, exclaiming, Don't delay the revolution. The socialist thought worse would be better. More social misery would mean more social upheaval. Arise, ye prisoners of starvation and all that. In America, take that, Stanford, the worse wokeness becomes, the better. Wokeness is being shrunk by the solvent of the laughter it provokes. So the call to action from George Will in all of this is to do basically exactly what we do here. That's why I wanted to read this whole column to you. It is indirectly an endorsement of woke tales. Sometimes we get fired up and angry about this stuff, but most of the time during woke tales, we just sharpen our blade of ridicule. And I think laughing at these people sometimes is exactly what they deserve and really just punctures the self-righteous bubble that they inhabit. So thank you, George Will, for your contribution here. Maybe he's a listener to the podcast. Who knows? I shouldn't tell him that I'm wearing jeans, though. It's another conversation. We'll take a break. We'll come right back. It is The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Welcome back to The Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. So I saw that there's an op-ed written in the Daily Beast by Randy Weingarten. The slow-witted teachers union boss 
who has done so much harm to so many people and who is a member in not just good but great standing on the political left because of the influence and the money of the racket that she runs. It is a democratic political organization, pure and simple, the interests of which align with democratic politicians, some union members, and absolutely not the interests of students and families. That's who she is. It's what she believes. She's very, in some ways, bad at her job in the sense that she is not persuading anyone to her side. She is driving people away from her side. Now, the fact that she occupies this position of power is significant. Right? And all the money that they extract from union dues, right? they have heft. I'm not pretending that they don't in these unions. But I've endorsed her to be the lifetime face of the teachers' union leadership because she is so unappealing, off-putting, and alienating. If I could somehow get her on the Democratic ticket for president, I would do it. Randy, Randy, Randy. She's an excellent foil for people who care about students, who care about education, unlike her. So in this latest piece of propaganda that she has belched out over at the Daily Beast, she argues research shows that teachers' unions are positively associated with student achievement. The headline of the piece is, Kids Do Better in Schools with Teachers' Unions. All right, so that's the thrust of her argument. Hey, the outcomes are better. You should love us in the teachers' unions. I mean, we may have had your schools closed for a year and a half, plunging kids into depression and addiction and forcing them to fall behind irrevocably in a number of subject matters. But, you know, set that aside. Research, quote-unquote, this is like the old appeal to experts. Here's Randy telling us about the experts. I was like, sure, Randy. Sure, Jan. Research supposedly shows that kids do better if they're in schools where there are teachers' unions. Now, I guarantee you, there is other research that would show the opposite. The places where teachers' unions are most powerful and in the cities and areas that are run by their allies most overwhelmingly, blue state, blue cities, how are the schools doing there, by and large, would you say? We gave you a few examples recently of like entire deep blue cities where across dozens of schools there are zero students performing at grade level when it comes to math and reading and, and other metrics. Baltimore was one example that we brought to your attention just very recently, as a matter of fact. You go down the list. The places where the teachers' unions and their Democratic allies are strongest are places where no one would go out of their way to send their kid. All the rich, overwhelmingly white progressive liberals who would not along with this sentiment from Randy Weingarten, and they send their kids, by the way, 
to private schools. Some of the most intense opponents of school choice are rich, privileged, private school products who would never dream of sending their kids to public school. I would love to hear some of these elites tell us with a straight face that they're going to pull their kids out of whatever, the $50,000 a year private school that their kids are enrolled in, and they're going to send them instead to the unified Los Angeles school district or send them to the Washington, D.C. schools, public schools, Baltimore, you name it, Chicago. Some of the stats we gave you recently out of Chicago and the Chicago Teachers Union that dominates there, I mean, pathetic, scandalous. So I think on its face, a lot of people aren't going to believe the claim. But let's just, for the sake of argument, take the claim at face value. Let's pretend that for once, Randy Weingarten isn't being a liar or an ignoramus or both. Let's pretend that there's something to this. It's actually true that schools that are dominated by teachers unions produce better results for kids. If that were true... Randy and company should be 100% supportive of school choice. They should welcome the competition. Like, oh, yeah, give people a choice. They will choose to come here because the outcomes are better. After all, the research shows it. Right, Randy? The fact that they are adamantly, virulently opposed to school choice tells you everything you need to know. They know this is a lie. They know that if parents have an opportunity to send their kids elsewhere, to have some competition, and to extricate their children from failing public schools in some of these deep blue precincts, they would do it in a heartbeat. The whole argument, research, they see it every day in their kids' lives. They just don't have the means to get their kids out of there. If they did, they would do it instantly. So when it comes to competition, Randy and company know they would lose which is why they fight school choice while gaslighting you with garbage like this. If they were confident that they weren't lying, they'd say, bring on the competition. Of course, they say, make the competition illegal. But the pendulum is swinging in the opposite direction in this country, thank goodness. We're seeing school choice proliferating across the country, in red states in particular. Governors are no longer scared of this. They're leading into it. Arizona was a leader with Doug Ducey when he was governor. And just this week in Arkansas, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, the governor there, signed sweeping school choice legislation into effect. It's happening. It's a good thing. Randy Weingarten and company are terrified, and they should be. And it's good news for kids and their families. Bad news for Randy and Democrats. Final hour of the Guy Benson Show coming up. We've got a new budget from Joe Biden. President rolling it out today. Larry Kudlow in studio. Going to take a hatchet to that when we come back. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It is the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show, our final hour of today's program. Thank you for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is always free on demand. 
GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow me on social media at Guy Benson Show. That's the show account, Twitter and Instagram. My personal account is at Guy P. Benson. This hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is great. I encourage you to try it if you haven't already. 21 plus only. Always drink responsibly. TheLongDrink.com. Joining me now here in studio, little exchange program on the TV side earlier, now on the radio side. He is here in D.C., Larry Kudlow. Host of FBN's Cudlow every day at four. He's the king of FBN. He's the former director of the National Economic Council under President Trump. And it is great to have you not just in studio. We normally do it in New York face to face, but you're back in D.C. and we're delighted to have you here. Thank you, Guy. A pleasure to be here. Always for you. All right. So let's talk about this budget that's uh, being proposed now by President Biden. Look, it's not going anywhere. It's mm-hmm. dead on arrival in the House mm-hmm. of Representatives, thank goodness. But this is a document that I guess the Democrats think is politically crafty because it is packed full of tax increases on a whole bunch of people. But they're going to try to frame it, as always, as tax increases for the rich. And they're also framing it as deficit reduction. That's their big talking point. We want to reduce deficits and save Medicare. These are the talking points that they've got. You start to look at some of the proposals, like five, five and a half trillion dollars of tax increases. It's pretty breathtaking. Yeah, the era of big government on steroids. That's what I'm looking at. And um, it will not be it's not a serious proposal. It is going to be dead on arrival. But I think even in terms of policy, it will not be regarded as a serious proposal so that. If Biden claims he's going to cut the deficit by some such, I see three trillion in one of these articles. Um, no one will take that seriously because it's all about tax hikes. When you cut the budget deficit in any permanent sense, you want to have permanent spending restraints, budget savings, as it's called. Uh, this will go and do no such thing. And also, it's interesting. You have the Federal Reserve trying to uh, get inflation down. Okay. And they'll be raising rates some more. We learned that earlier this week. Uh, this kind of a budget, which spends a lot uh, and taxes a lot, is very inflationary. The spending itself increases aggregate demand. Think of it that way. But the tax hikes will reduce the, co- the whole economy. You'll have, on the supply side, fewer. Think of it. The Art Laffer has this great way to look at it. Um, apples and money. So you have the same amount of money. Okay, we're looking to buy apples. If all of a sudden there are more apples available on the market and we still have the same amount of money, more apples lowers the price of apples. Think of it that way. Mm -hmm. Fewer apples raises the price of apples. So you have the Fed shrinking the money supply and Biden is going to shrink the economy with whatever five trillion of tax hikes on large corporations, small businesses investors, Medicare, payroll taxes, everything will be taxed to death. So we will produce less, right? Goods will be scarcer, and the Fed's pulling money out of the economy, so it makes the inflation fight that much harder. There's no sink uh, sink between the Fed uh, and the administration. So I think from a macro standpoint, that's a big problem. This is one whopping inflationary budget, and it'll destroy the economy. I mean, if, if this stuff ever went through, which uh, it won't, which it won't, 
but it makes – you know, he, think about this. Uh, is this a blueprint for his reelection campaign? I think, you know, one could argue it will be. I mean, certainly the themes, right, more child credit, more uh, daycare, more home care, all those things that the Democrats seem to love and we've already had so much of, all the emergency COVID spending continues, um, and taxing rich people. Rich people don't pay their fair share, even though we just had a report that said rich people, the top 1% pays uh, 42% of all the tax revenues. And if you put in state and local, it would be about 65%. But I see this as themes, and no one knows what the outcome of the presidential election is going to be. But I think people would stop for a moment and say, holy cow, this is really a far-left Democratic Party that's going to go after prosperity, not help it, but damage prosperity because of their ideology. I sometimes wonder how, at least economically, on economic policy – how an Elizabeth Warren presidency would look much different mm-hmm. than what we're seeing from Joe Biden, or which a, is kind of a frightening thought. Or a, um, a Sanders' presidency. Same thing. You're exactly right. It's a socialist agenda. Uh, it's a big government agenda. It's a high-tax agenda. It's a very low-growth, non-existent. It's a recessionary agenda. And at the same time, it's an inflationary agenda. It's like, it's like they put all this stuff together – without any thought whatsoever um, to the economy, to the impact on the economy. No, it's like political talking points. That's what they do on everything, though, right? You look at their policies on almost every issue. It's politics first always. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's just about right. Yeah. You know, this isn't um, this isn't even modern monetary theory because modern monetary theory would say uh, – Go ahead and spend and have deficits and print as much money as you want. These guys are saying, well, actually, we, we don't want to have as much deficits. We, we have want. to reduce the deficits. So, yeah, we have to reduce deficit by taxing the producers in society. That's what this – they are taxing predominantly the activist producers, the activist investors. And the people that will really pay for this, incidentally, um, uh, uh, the blue-collar workers, you know, these are anti-job creation. Here's a couple thoughts because I said confidently like two minutes ago that <laughs> this is DOA not going to happen, which is true. And one of the benefits of having the House Republican majority, even by just this ha- tiny handful of votes, is this stuff is dead. No chance over the next two years not happening. That's good. That is unambiguously good news. However – if we want to talk about politics and they want to set this up as some sort of, you know, play setting for the 2024 election, I want listeners to think about the real possibility that Joe Biden could win again. Mm-hmm. Think about who he wants to run against. Mm-hmm. Think about House Democrats only needing half a dozen seats to get the gavel back and handing it over to Hakeem Jeffries with Pelosi pulling the strings or what have you. They already have the Senate majority. It's just a a small number of votes potentially from this type of budget being a very real nightmare for the country not long from now. So we're safe for the moment, but unless Republicans win and make smart decisions electorally over the next two years, they'll have an opportunity to do this stuff and worse if they get the government back under their full control. No, no, you've uh, insightfully uh, elongated my thought that this is a blueprint for – uh, Biden in 2024. That's exactly right. And if you are a uh, person in business, for example, you got to scratch your head. Uh, 
how much money do I want to invest? How much money can I afford to invest? Do I want to build a new business? Do I want to expand my existing business? So this has a wet blanket effect on the economy right now. And, and I the uncertainty. I mean, look, you're right. You have a handful of house seats uh, here, New York. New York was very important in swinging the House Republican. But in a presidential year, New York is a landslide for Joe Biden or whoever the Democrat is called Joe Biden, which means you could lose. I think they picked up four seats or five seats. You could lose that and poof, your Republican majority is gone. The same thing, uh, Guy, take California. All right. In a presidential year, Democrats are lethal and Republicans are in trouble. And that was another spot where they picked up. You need a strong Republican at the top of the ticket in some Absolutely. of these places and then win back some seats. There's some low-hanging fruit for Republicans to win elsewhere, by the way, that they blew last time. But this is a, you know, a knife's edge stuff, whether it's economic policy or anything else, blowing up the filibuster in the Senate and all sorts of DC, DC statehood. And you, know, you go down the list. I'm looking right now at some of the articles, Larry, about this budget proposal from Biden which won't be reality in the next two years, but beyond, who knows? So a tax on billionaires, one of these wealth taxes, which polls, I'm sure, very well. Uh, the reality is they've tried this in Europe. Mm. It doesn't work. It's doesn't just work. a failure, but they're putting it on paper. You say, look, isn't that, isn't that fair? Don't we hate the billionaires? Fine. Uh, capital gains taxes, huge increase in capital gains taxes. I remember, and you probably do too, in the 2008 presidential campaign, Barack Obama was asked actually a tough question in a debate about how mm. capital gains taxes, we'll when they're increased, loses revenues. But he doesn't care. He, and he had no answer to that. It's <laughs> like when – because it was the Clinton example. But I don't think that's – here's my – look, suppose this – what you're describing, you're building up to, is an election that's socialism versus capitalism. Okay? And if the Republicans are smart, uh, they will characterize it. Uh, as that way, or you could say uh, stagflation versus prosperity, okay, because these are big issues, and these will dominate the uh, presidential cycle. So I don't know how smart this is. I'm just going to say I don't think America— By the Democrats. Yeah, I, I don't think America wants this, okay? I think this is so extreme, Guy, that—and as long as it's portrayed as such, I don't think this is as popular— as the, I mean, look, Biden, uh, you know, you go back to the midterms, Biden tried as much as he could to stay away from this stuff. You know, he talked about abortion. He talked about the battle for democ democracy. He talked about MAGA. He didn't hardly ever want to talk about inflation or economic growth, okay? Uh, Republicans have to be smart and drive those arguments, which, by the by, I have said uh, on air a bunch of times, I'm underwhelmed so far with what Republicans have done uh, regarding the economic prosperity arguments and the cost of living arguments and the I'm, I'm underwhelmed. I mean, I hear a lot about woke. Uh, I don't like woke any more than anybody else, but woke doesn't create a job. Uh, I hear a lot about, you know, uh, global warfare and globalists and things of that sort. Um, again, that avoids the issue. 
I mean, Joe Biden has had 500 new regulations. He's had like five or six hundred billion dollars of regulatory costs on small business. And incidentally, uh, a lot of the taxes here will fall on small 100%. business. A hundred percent. Subchapter S uh, type taxes, LLC S-corps. type yep. taxes. And the corporate tax rate, too. So, so I don't like, think it's that popular. Small businesses will get hit by new taxes. Big businesses will get hit by new taxes. And if you ask people, hey, do you like the idea of taxing corporations more? A lot of them are going to say yes. But, but if you ask them, do you want corporations and small businesses to hire fewer people and charge you more for stuff, especially during inflation, the answer is hell no. If you poll, that's exactly right. By the way, uh, John McLaughlin, among others, have polled on this. If you ask people if higher corporate taxes causes a loss of jobs and uh, higher prices, they say no. Oh, decisively. So that's, see, again, it comes to how do these... How do you frame it? candidates frame the issues and do they put some clarity into it and some real world examples uh into it i i had tim scott on the show uh last night uh senator scott of south carolina who was just superb and right out of the box now maybe it was because me but he starts talking free markets supply side economics Ronald Reagan. He knows Jack the audience. Kemp. Yeah. He knows the audience, Larry. He's, I mean, we are the highest rated show yeah. of all business for all networks. But he actually, and I said this to him, in that seven, eight minute interview, whatever, I thought he did a better job than any of the big guys on the economy. Okay. Including he's, my, he's former, really good. my former boss, Trump, including DeSantis, including uh, uh, Nikki Haley hasn't talked about the economy. You know, I love Nikki Haley. I love my former boss. I'm prepared to love DeSantis, but they're not talking about the issues that matter most, which is jobs, working, and the cost of living, electricity, and utility bills, and grocery. Anyway, um, uh, Tim just knocked it out of the park, and I was kidding him about that. I said, so you're ready to throw out your hat in the ring? <laughs> and he just kind of smiled. You know, it was like a... a well, he's, he's testing the waters. He's doing the listening tour or yeah. whatever. I will tell you, I was but just. But you got to do that. That's my point. The GOP's got to take advantage. The, this socialist, big government socialist thing that Biden's doing, the Bernie Sanders thing, the Elizabeth Warren thing, Newt calls it big government socialism. The GOP's got to jump on that. That's the thing. Really jump on that and show the contrast between their philosophy and the Democrat. This is not your father's or grandfather's Democratic Party. And explain how these. I'm sure poll-tested tax increases that aren't going anywhere, at least for now, it's political talking points, but show how they would be destructive to average people. Yeah. Just generally, I think you can make an argument. Think about what our economy has been through for the last three years mm-hmm. during the pandemic and mm-hmm. all these shutdowns and then spending trillions of dollars and then spending trillions more insanely, massive inflation, all this stuff. Now the Fed doing what they're doing, perhaps a recession coming, mm-hmm. and the big solution is – Let's punish job creators yeah. and tax a bunch more. That's, no, that's right. I, I think that a lot of Americans in their bones understand that doesn't make sense. And they have to be uh, – it has to be clarified. Now, one other point, um, and I'm not sure how this plays out, but this is such a uh, – this uh, Biden budget is such a hostile document to Republican uh, thinking. I mean, really – this is, will unite the GOP, you know, the hard right guys, 
the big supply siders like myself, even the squishy Republicans who voted for some of these lousy no, no. bills. Every, every single one of them is against this. I so it's, it's unifying in that sense. And I would make this point to you very quickly, Larry, because we got to run. Of the growth and job opportunities and the positive news that has happened in our economy over the last year plus, almost all of it is being driven by states doing the opposite of all of this, right? right? That, the actual states true. doing well are ignoring this exact mentality and going the 180 opposite direction. You know, I that matters. That. I, I don't know. It could have been you or whoever wrote this, but um, you can have such a thing now as self-tax cutting. You think your taxes are too high? You can cut your own taxes by moving. Yeah, you can move, by and a lot of Americans have done that by the millions. <laughs> Larry Kudlow, we got to leave it there. <laughs> FBN's Kudlow every day at four, number one, as he mentioned. Always great to see you, Larry. Thanks, guy. I will talk soon. Great. We'll take a break. It is the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. We are back. It's the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. We mentioned this a few weeks ago. Just a reminder, our colleague Benjamin Hall, who is a Fox News war correspondent who famously, tragically, was wounded gravely in Ukraine. He has come back from those wounds, from those injuries, and he made his debut back on the air on Fox & Friends. And he is about to release a brand new book, a memoir, called Saved, A War Reporter's Mission to Make It Home. It comes out next week, March 14th, published by HarperCollins, and it is going to be, I'm sure, extremely moving. We are looking forward to having Benjamin on this show in the coming weeks. He will be on Hannity tonight, Fox News Channel, in the 9 p.m. hour. Benjamin Hall on Hannity. Check that out this evening. We'll take a break. We'll come right back. It's the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Earlier today on the Guy Benson Show, we welcomed in studio Bill Barr, former U.S. Attorney General under two different Republican presidents, author of the book One Damn Thing After Another. Here is a part of my conversation with Bill Barr. Give us your broad view thesis of the piece and why you felt like it was urgent to write this now. Right. To deal with the drug problem in the United States... Uh, which is growing and uh, imposing huge costs on the United States in terms of lives and and uh, uh, treasure. Uh, yes, you need some demand side reduction, but you also need an attack on the supply. They have to go hand in hand. Attacks on the supply are most effective and have been historically very effective if you do it at the source of the drugs. The place to fight the drugs is not necessarily uh, you know, in the neighborhoods as it's being distributed. Yes, you try to stop that. But if you can get at the source and destroy the cartels, uh, that's where you're going to make a difference. And we can do it and we know how to do it and we've done it before. In the early 1990s, we, with the cooperation of the Colombians, uh, they gave us a lot of latitude and we were able to destroy the Cali and the Medellin cartels. Uh, but then we stopped doing that kind of thing in about 1995 and we allowed them to take root in Mexico and there's been nothing stopping them. They've been growing and they've now established safe havens. And they're oper- they control a, a tremendous portion of the country. 
The government is not interested in in stopping them. It won't do anything seriously to challenge them. It's sharing sovereignty with them. It's it's uh, you know sort of peaceful coexistence. They have neither the will nor the ability to curtail the cartels. The cartels have corrupted the Mexican government as they do almost all Mexican governments with the oceans of money that they have. And those that they can't corrupt, they'll intimidate with terrorism and Mm -hmm. terror tactics. If you're a judge trying to do your job or a cop trying to do your job, you have to worry about your family getting wiped out. So they have a vice-like grip on that country. And the Mexicans themselves are not going to be able to break free of it in my opinion. Is that that a failed state? I think it's uh, – under this – government, AMLO's government, I think it's spiraled to the point of being a failed narco state. AMLO is Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, yes. the lefty Mexican president, right. and you're calling him the chief enabler of the cartels in this Wall Street Journal piece. Yes. He came in and uh, he announced he's not no longer going to fight the drug war. He's not going to fight against the cartels. Uh, His policy was hugs, not bullets, and he wants to do a lot more social spending to eliminate poverty in Mexico, which I don't think is going to happen in in your lifetime. (laughs) But that's not the problem. The problem is these criminal organizations that are now paramilitary, tens and tens of thousands of these uh, thugs. Uh, They have military forces. They can go toe-to-toe with the Mexican military. What does it tell you when they go to make one arrest in in Culiacan, which is the capital of Sinaloa state controlled by the Sinaloa cartel? They go in to arrest El Chapo's son. They sent in – the first time, um, they sent in 700 uh, – approximately 1,000 to to, to arrest them. And uh, they had to give them up because uh, they were outgunned by the – Cartels, and then the cartels surrounded uh, an apartment where the families of the military people were. So they surrendered the the son and left. That full interview with former Attorney General Bill Barr available in its entirety at guybensonshow.com. Also, the whole show, start to finish, always free on demand on our podcast every day after the show is over, which is happening soon. Guybensonshow.com, foxnewspodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, it is the home stretch. We've got a few things to talk about, including travel preferences. We'll explain when we come back. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on Friday Eve on the Guy Benson Show. Here in D.C., glad to have you all along. GuyBensonShow.com, podcast free every day. So because it is my birthday week, which we're now just milking for content, this is our third day, I think, of birthday content, dating back to my actual birthday, March 7th, and we had really a very fun conversation yesterday about another birthday greeting. It was Carly Rae Jepsen on Tuesday, Delilah on Wednesday, And we'll get just a little bit more out of it here on Thursday because it's still the birthday week. I was on Kennedy last night, as we mentioned. We previewed on Fox Business Network. And I decided because I had seen – I hadn't seen it in a while – my senior portrait in high school. It's framed. We had it in a closet in my house. So I saw it and I realized that it was 20 years ago. 
That was a senior in high school two decades ago. I graduated in 2003. And I took my senior class portrait right around this time of year. So here's a photo of a smiling yours truly with my hair slicked forward with some product it looks like and then flipped up in the front. That was a big look back at the time. Actually looks pretty good, I think. Definitely dated, but I think it looks okay. And I've got a dark blue collared shirt on, a blue blazer, and then a yellow and blue patterned tie from Joseph A. Bank. And I saw this uh, portrait of myself from 20 years ago. I said, first of all, holy hell, 20 years. Wow. 18 to 38. Secondly, I said to myself, I still have that tie. I don't wear it very often because it is unfashionably thick. It's too wide for this day and age, but I still had it. So because I was on Kennedy last night, I said, I'm going to find a similarly colored shirt. I, of course, have an array of blue blazers, as one would. And then that tie, I'm going to wear that on the air. So I did. That was last night. Then I decided, let's take it a step further. In my high school photo, I've got one of those sort of generic backdrops. It looks like maybe a blue sky with some clouds. That's the backdrop. I said, I wonder if I could find something like that on the Internet. So we did. Adam helped me with this. We blew it up on the screen behind me in the home studio. This was after I was off the air with Kennedy. And then we spent probably five minutes trying to get the lighting and the angle right for me to replicate the angle of my head, the direction my eyes are pointed, the smile. I was trying to recreate as best I could this exact same photo, but 20 years later. And the results, I have to say, all things considered are pretty good. It's not perfect. It's not exactly what I was going for, but it's like 90% of the way there. So I just had some fun with it. I posted it on Instagram. You can follow me there. Guy P. Benson. I also posted it last night on Twitter. Same handle, Guy P. Benson. And I got lots of comments from people on both platforms saying, you look exactly the same. You look exact." And some people were like, well, hold up. Is that the same tie? Yes. That I can confirm. I'm very proud that the tie is the same, honestly. I think that really makes the photo array. But I must say I reject the flattery. I, no, let me take that back. I accept happily the flattery that I am unchanged over 20 years. Uh, but I also am a realist, and I understand that that is indeed just flattery and not true. Like, shall we count the wrinkles, the hair starting a little higher up? I mean, not the same. In fact, I have some facial hair in the current photo which I was, I can assure you, absolutely incapable of growing 20 years ago. No chance. Even if I wanted to for a fashion statement, couldn't do it. So a little different. You can go back. I just thought it was a fun thing to do. And also it's just an acknowledgement of the passage of time. You could even call it the significance of the passage of time, something about which our vice president is an expert, if you remember that soundbite. So I enjoyed it. I Feel free to double tap the thing on Instagram if you think it's fun. I know Christine was sort of intrigued by this. Christine, uh, I was in high school many years after you were, but 
I'm sure you had. Did you have photographs when you were in high school? Did you guys do school photos and that sort of thing? Or was it like artist sketches back then? You're getting closer to 40. I wouldn't uh, make too many jokes there, guy. (laughs) I know. Late 30s for sure. I enjoy doing this. And, I mean, the backdrop isn't perfect. The shirt is a little different. But this, this was amusing to me, at least. I, I love it. I cannot believe you still have that tie. I'm trying to think if I have anything from when I was a senior in high school. I think the only thing I may still have is like my senior prom dress and my varsity cheerleading jacket. And that's about it. So well done for keeping the tie. And I have to say, it's still kind of in style. It's not you wouldn't think anything of it. Like it's retro no, it's, it's a little too thick, but you can't tell it because of the cropping. We cropped it similarly to what I had senior year. And now I need to keep this tie. If I can remember 10 years from now, maybe I need to do this same look at like 48. Or if we're doing it every 20 years, my gosh, 58, 20 years from now, I, I will look a little different. And you'll get some of the nice people being like, oh, you, it's, you're identical. I mean, come on. Uh, I have eyes. I can see that I don't look exactly the same. It would be weird if I did. Aging is fine. Anyway, I enjoyed it. And I wanted to just uh, put that out there because I know sometimes people like a little glimpse into our lives. We give them more than enough. Probably TMI all the time, especially during this segment. One other thing that I wanted to briefly talk about, Christine, and we had teased it right before the break. I've been traveling, if you hadn't noticed, so much, right? I was in Jordan. We talked about that trip. And then almost immediately I was in New York and then California and then Chicago and then Florida and then D.C. and then back to Chicago. And then I think, yep, here. And then tomorrow I go to Arizona. And then after that I'll be heading to the NCAA basketball tournament and then back to New York. It's just a season of life where I'm doing a lot of traveling. And therefore I'm on planes a ton, And the other day, actually on my birthday, getting up very early, flying to Chicago for a speech, I was not in the best of moods because I'm not a morning person and I was just going to try to fall back asleep on the plane. And in my row, there was a baby and a service dog. I believe the dog's name was Baxter or maybe Baker. Totally adorable Bernadoodle. I've now mentioned this twice. Weirdly, so I posted a photo With the back of the baby, so you couldn't see the baby's face, you could see the dog. A friend of mine, I posted it on my Instagram story, he DM'd me, he's like, I know these people. They go to my gym. So then those people ended up following me on Instagram. It's just like a small world. We started talking amongst our team about air travel and air travel preferences. And, Christine, I think you were pointing out that based on the angle of the photo or the video that I posted – that I was on the window seat, and you seem surprised that as a seasoned frequent flyer, I would want to be on the window because you are a big aisle gal. And like no one's a middle seat person, right? Let's just be clear. No one's like, oh, I love the middle seat. That's just not a thing. You're one or the other. You are a committed aisler. Why? I am because I am respectful of my fellow passengers And I am a gal, I'm sure like many, that needs to uh, get to the restroom probably every hour or so. 
And I don't want to be bothered. Every hour. Yeah, I mean, it depends what I'm drinking. Let's be honest. Yeah, I was going to say, all that mama's juice at 30,000 feet. <laughs> Plus, I have Megan. So if it's not me, it's Megan, you know, going. So uh, I try to always get the aisle. And also, if I don't get the aisle and I'm in a window seat or a middle seat, I usually will buy the person next to me something, like a drink or a snack or something, just to say thank you. Because I'm constantly, you know, tap, tap, tap. Excuse me, can I get by? And then, you know, you got to move everything, get up. And then I got to tap, tap, tap. Hey, I'm ready to sit down now. You know, and then an hour later, tap, tap, tap. Excuse Ugh. me. Yeah, no, no, I'm I not, know this. it's not I great. I know this type. I know this type. So, yes, you should be on the aisle. I get up occasionally during flights, but I like to be on the window. I like to lean up against sort of the fuselage of the plane. It helps me sleep sometimes. Um, I enjoy being able to look out the window. That's a big thing. I also, and I think Dan was mentioning this. This is a thing. I enjoy being able to control the window shade up or down. Uh, Maybe that's a control freak thing that I have. But to me, you take more charge of your traveling experience, in my opinion, when you have a window seat. Dan, the window shade thing is not a small thing to me. It's actually significant. No, I totally agree, because sometimes if you're trying to sleep, you want to put it down, but then sometimes you like to look out the window, just like you said, and I'm one of those people. Plus, I'm also not one of those people that has to get up right when the plane lands, you know? So, like, we're all getting out when we get out, so it doesn't really matter if you're in the aisle or, you know, you're getting out when you get out. It doesn't, I don't, I don't care, so window for me all day. Yeah, I'm also one of the people who they'll say, oh, you know, we're running a little bit behind and people have tight connections. If you don't have a tight connection, can you please stay put and let people get off the plane? And often a lot of people just ignore that and they stand up instantly as soon as you pull up to the gate and there's a big, you know, bottleneck. I'm happy to sit there and wait and let people get off the plane uh, unless I'm one of those people who has the tight connection, right? That's the one exception where you want people to actually do you the favor. So definitely team window seat. Christine hardcore on the aisle, and she has good reasons. If I'm seated next to Christine on a flight, I want her on the aisle. I, I want her in another row on the aisle, frankly. But, you know, I she her reasoning makes sense to me. Wyatt, do you have a preference, or are you just sort of like wherever? I'm kind of like just good with whatever, but I do like being in the aisle in case I need to get off fast or just like just to just not feel trapped and claustrophobic, like sitting next to someone and feeling like I can't move so i do prefer the aisle but i mean it is annoying when people tap you on the shoulder and say can i get up can i get up can i get up because that i've I've sat on planes before with people like christine that that will do it several times on a flight and it does does get to you and yet you're an aisle person so we're split 50 50 and last thing i will say we had on one of my flights recently uh a young mother and her young son like six or seven years old Seven-year-old was sitting next to me, very well-behaved, but he wanted Pringles. And his mom, like, the app wasn't working, and they wouldn't take cash. And so, like Christine mentioned, I get, like, a free snack because I fly so much with my United status. So I was able to bestow upon this child Pringles. And he was very polite. She said, what do you say? He said, thank you, sir. And it turned out he was a hockey fan, so he and I talked about hockey for, like, 30 minutes on the flight. Uh, delightful. So I've had some wonderful seatmates recently, including Baby, including Hockey Kid, and including Baker the Dog, who's an absolute baby, extremely well-behaved. I wonder how Roy would do on a plane. I want to try it. Adam is dead set against it. 
he thinks Roy would freak out and he doesn't he doesn't want the pressure of people glaring at us if Roy isn't doing well. I don't know, maybe I'll have to do it on my own. I'll take this matter into my own hands. That could be an experiment moving forward. Back on another flight tomorrow, but after the show, because I'm here fulfilling my hosting duties tomorrow. Same time, same place as always. The Friday edition of The Guy Benson Show coming your way when we come back and gather 21 hours from now. In the meantime, have a great night. Thank you for listening. Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.